Over the years, I've conservatively done 600 funerals, probably as many as 1,000. And I hear so many things that people say at that time, and I know it's a sensitive time, but honestly, what troubles me when I do a funeral sometimes is I hear people talk about the person who has passed, and, and it's almost as if they're just sort of guessing about what happens next. I've heard, well, they've gone to a better place, or they're up there fishing with Grandpa, and, and, and I think that's great. I love the imagination of that moment, but I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic, and frankly, it's a huge question. The question, what happens the moment you die, is bigger than where do you go to college, what do you do for a living, what do you drive, where do you live? It's just the quintessential question of life. What happens the moment you die? Does it all fade to black? I was born August 25th, 1956. I can tell you about what happened in the 60s. A little hazy on the 70s, but I can tell you what happened in the 70s. I can tell you about 1985. I can tell you about 2006. 30 years ago yesterday, I moved to Wichita. I can tell you about that. I can tell you about a whole lot of things, but I don't, I mean, on a personal note, our personal level, I can't tell you about 1946 because I don't have any sense of existence then, or 1936, or 1906, or 1215, or 40 BC. I don't have any sense of awareness at all. Is that what it's going to be like when you die? Do you just go back to that kind of situation? Does it, do you have a sense of awareness, but is it like the blue screen of death? Are you just a name on a tombstone? One of the things that I hear, and again, I understand there's a legitimate application of this, so don't get me wrong. I'm not just ranting. Um, but one of the things that gets under my skin sometimes is I hear people say, well, they live, in, they live in our memories. And the reason why that gets under my skin is I know where it comes from. It comes from Greek philosophy. The idea that when people leave this life, they, their existence, they're kept alive by our memories. Well, like I said, there's a legitimate application of that. My dad died two years ago, and I have great memories of him. And when I do remember him, it's like he's here again briefly. So I, I get what that expression is. But is that the best that we can hope for? It's just to live in people's memories? Seems like that's got a short shelf life. I mean, hey, how many of us remember our great-great-great-great-grandmother? How many of us even know her name? So if the best I can hope for is to be kept alive are the people who remember me, well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to have a little more than that. What does happen the moment you die? Well, I, I know the median age here at New Spring is pretty young, so a lot of you could be saying, well, Mark, I, I don't want to think about that today. I'm, you know, I'm 20 years old, or I'm 30 years old, or I just now begin to raise my kids. I, I, that's way out there in the future, and I hope it is. I would remind you that people die at all ages, but I'm hoping that for you it is as long out there as you want to live. But there's something that you and I should remember. Life goes fast. Hey, I used to get so upset with my dad when I was a young person, and dad would say, hey, the older, older you get, the faster life goes. And I used to argue with him. I'm kind of argumentative anyway. And I used to say, dad, a year's a year, months and months, a day's a day. It doesn't matter how old you is. You know what? He's right. I remember this is a long time ago. And I'm celebrating 30 years here, so a lot of my memories are old. I remember it's probably been almost 30 years ago. I was making a visit at Wesley Hospital. And one of our families had been trying to get pregnant for a long time, and they had gone through the pregnancy, and the day was coming for her inducement and, and for the baby to be born. And so I was at Wesley Hospital. I was very excited for them. It's a young couple I've ministered to a lot. And so I was actually kind of like in the door of the birthing suite at Wesley when the baby was born. And if memory serves correct, I was the second person to hold the baby. And I remember holding the baby and looking into the baby's face and thinking, that's a brand new human being. Just, just got here. But before I left the hospital, I remembered that we had an elderly lady in our church who said, hey, Mark, or Pastor Mark, or Brother Mark, he used to call me back in those days. He said, you know, uh, she said, my brother and his wife are visiting from Arizona, and my sister-in-law is taken ill, and she's at Wesley. And I thought, okay, before I leave Wesley, I want to go check in with her, see how she's doing. 
Turned out she was in the tower. She's over in building four. And so I got up to the room. And honestly, folks, I got there 10 minutes before she died. And her husband, Jack, was there. And Jack and I became friends for many years. In fact, I, I preached his funeral. But I remember that moment as I held Jack's hand and I held his wife's hand. I held both their hands as she slipped out of this life and into eternity. And as I held that woman's hand as she breathed her last breath, there were a couple of thoughts that hit me really hard. First of all, the brevity of life. Life's short. And the second thing that hit me was, you know, it probably hasn't been that long since the woman whose hand I was holding now was a little baby in her dad's arms. So I just want to say to all of us here today, even if you get to live a long life, you need to think about this question because life comes out as fast, as fast as the commercial says, and all of us are going to reach this moment when we leave this life and something is going to happen. You know, as I said, I've probably done a thousand funerals in my life, at least 600, maybe more than a thousand. But I've been called in many times by people who weren't even, they, don't, they didn't believe in God that much. But it's like they wanted to minister to the funeral. I used to wonder about that. Why do people call a minister to do a funeral? We have a lot of doctors here at New Spring. We have a lot of surgeons and specialists. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've never known a minister who was as smart as a doctor. Why not call a doctor when somebody dies to do the service? Or an attorney. Man, lawyers are brilliant. They, they take a lot of ribbing. But I got to tell you, those of you guys who are attorneys and gals, y'all are extraordinarily brilliant. I, I've never met a... You, you, you have a case. You have a good lawyer. When you go to court, she'll know more about your case than you know about it. And I was impressed with lawyers' minds. Uh, you know, Paul Clark is in heaven now. He's one of the closest friends I ever had. He was solicitor general for the state of Kansas, and he became a judge. He's one of the longest-serving judges in Sedgwick County. What a godly man. If you didn't know him, maybe you saw him on television, you know, in prime cases. And, you know, he'd sit there on the bench with those glasses. He looked like the quintessential judge, you know. And, and so I asked him one time, we were at lunch, and I said, Paul, tell me about a lawyer's mind. How is it you guys just know so much about a case? He said, i never forget. He said, Pastor, a lawyer's mind, mind is like a bathtub. You fill it up, you drain it. You fill it up, you drain it. So, so why, don't, why don't people call a lawyer? Lawyers are, lawyers are great. Lawyers can make closing arguments. They're smart. They're very smart. They know how to speak. Why not call a lawyer when someone dies? Or an engineer. Got a lot of engineers at New Spring. Engineers are very brilliant. And they know how things work. They know how to make things work. I'm not sure I've ever met a minister who's as brilliant as an engineer. Or at least, why not call somebody on cable news, cable television news, because they know everything. <laughs> why call a minister? Hey, it's real simple. Death is a curtain. And you take all the disciplines and studies in the world, they all stop at that curtain. I mean, law is great. And I thank God for law and our justice, justice system. But man, the law stops when, when someone dies. It doesn't have anything to say about a person after they leave. Medicine is wonderful. Medicine can take us right up to that moment when a person dies, but medicine can't look beyond that curtain. Engineering is great, but engineering can't tell us what's behind the curtain. See, I think there's a sense in all of us, and, and, and forgive me for breaking a sentence, but I've watched this even among people who are, who are non-theists. There's a sense in all of us that there's more to life than this. You know, my non-theist friends, when I've been called in to serve them, when they've lost a family member, frankly, to be honest with you, it's almost like they take a time out from their non-theism to explore the spiritual side of things. Guys, there's a reason for that. The Bible tells us the reason in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Most of us know the first line of that verse. It says, he's made everything beautiful in his time. Some of you have jewelry that has that in it or a hanging on your wall. He has made everything beautiful in his time. But the next line of that same verse says, he has planted eternity in the human heart. 
Think about that. No matter what your belief system is, I'm guessing somewhere deep within your system, there's a sense of eternality, that life is not over when it seems like it's over. And beyond that, many of us have heard stories of people who were very close to crossing over. My mother was in the services last night and the A15 service this morning. My mom and dad lost a four-year-old to brain cancer. And this was before I was born, but I've heard my mother tell this story with joy a thousand times that the night before Roger died, he said to her, I dreamed I spent the night with Jesus and I was so happy. I remember we had a, oh, this is way back in time at the old location. We had a sweet little couple, very elderly couple. Their, their name was Seward. And, and they were so precious to watch because they were quite elderly and they just sort of toddled when they walked. And it was like they leaned on each other as they were walking in, you know. And they used to sit at the back. I could still see them in the old worship center where they sat. I used to go greet them. And, and anyway, but, you know, time passed and, and, and Mrs. Seward passed. You know how it is with a lot of elderly couples that have been really, really close like that. One of them passes long before the other one passes. And so it was just a few weeks later, Mr. Seward became very ill. And I went to see him. The doctors had told me, they said, we don't think he's going to last, maybe through the day. And so I, I sat down to talk to him, and, and uh, I was surprised because he told me something that, that shocked me. He said, Pastor Mark, I'm afraid to die. I'm, worried, I, I'm afraid to die. So I tried to give him as much comfort as I could. I shared scriptures with him and prayed with him. But I made up my mind I was going to get there early the next day. I got there about 8 o'clock the next morning at, at the Tower in Wesley. And when I, late, when I walked in, he was just lying back in bed, totally relaxed. And I said, how are you doing, Mr. Seward? He said, let me tell you about something that happened, Pastor Mark. He said, 4 o'clock this morning, there was a bright light that shined through the door. He pointed to the door of his room. There's a bright light that shined through the door. And he said, it was Jesus. And he told me not to be afraid. You say, Mark, you think it was Jesus? I don't know. I'll just tell you this. I was there the day before when he was scared to death. I was there the day when he died, and he wasn't worried about it a bit. Those are cool things. But I tend to be a skeptic. I'm a person who likes to say, put the evidence on the table. And I want to deal with reason and logic. And more than that, I want to deal with the truth. Those things are helpful. But when you and I come to the point of asking what's going to happen the moment we die, we want something a little more concrete. So what are we going to do, what are we going to do today if we answer this question? Let me take you to a point that could be a deal breaker for some of us at the very beginning. But work with me. You're not going to be able to go by what you can see. That's not going to answer. Whatever you can see, whatever you can process, is not going to answer the question. You know, again, as I share with you, I have friends who are non-theists, and non-theists tell me that there are two branches of non-theism. There's the atheist who says, I believe there's not a God, and there's the agnostic who says, I don't think there is a God, but if he ever decides to reveal himself to me, at least I'm open to the prospect. But therein lies a problem. There's, there's an essential issue with that problem because what it says is my perception, my senses, my ability to see things and feel them and experience them is the gatekeeper for all truth. That is a fundamentally and fatally flawed and a little bit narcissistic concept. The idea that only what I'm able to process personally is something that I can believe. Let me give you a facetious illustration of that. Suppose I could be transported back in time a thousand years, wherever you, wherever you want to pick. London, Cairo, Geneva, just any place. I'm walking the streets of a, of a town a thousand years ago, and the people there recognizing I'm a time traveler, they want to know about me. So I tell them about myself, and just among the things I tell them, I say, I'm, I'm, I'm a frequent flyer. 
You're a frequent flyer. Yeah, I'm a frequent flyer. I got a card in my pocket that says Delta Frequent you, you fly. Yeah, I fly. Fly all the time. You mean you, you fly? No, no, no. I fly on a ship. You fly on a ship. Yeah, a ship with wings. And a tail. Now listen, guys, you and I both know I'm going to be lucky if I don't get killed <laughs> as a witch or a heretic or at least put away somewhere that I'm, the rest of the people are safe from me. Because I have told them something that if I told you I'm a Delta Frequent Flyer, you'd say, oh, great, I drove a long way to hear that. Because you have a context for it, don't you? But they don't. So here's the thing. When you and I say, I'll only believe something if I see it, we're as facetious as those people back a thousand years ago who would have thought I was crazy when I told them I'm a frequent flyer. So I just want to say all that, say all that to say this. You and I are not going to be able to go by what we can see because death is a curtain and you and I are not going to get a look on the other side of that curtain until we get there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the greatest chapters on the resurrection, Scripture gives us a verse that's very familiar to us who are believers when someone dies. Verse 8 says, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But the verse right before that, verse 7 says, we live by believing and not by seeing. Now, here's our issue. The moment I tell you that we go by believing and not seeing, some of us have an issue with that because we bonus seeing and we discount the concept of believing. But go back to that construct that I shared with you a moment ago about going back a thousand years in time. Would the people a thousand years ago, would they be better off going by what they can see or would they be better off believing what I told them? Well, that would be, that's a two-inch pot. They'd be far better off believing because they would be listening to someone who has the experience of flying and they would have to go by believing but not by seeing. And so that's all the Bible is trying to tell us is we are wise to listen to the person who is seen behind the curtain and we go by believing and not by seeing. I remember in 1993 when I brought this talk for the first time, I knew I was going to have to go into an area that's really difficult to explain. And so I'm going to need your indulgence because for the next few moments, in order to tell you what happens the moment you die, I got to go into what could feel like theology. So would you just like give me about eight minutes to tell you something that you really need to know in order to be able to process things. Here it is. We probably don't understand death. Because when we go by what we can see, death looks like the cosmic stop sign. And, I'm, and to be academically honest with you, doing hundreds of funerals, i got to tell you this, and I'm not trying to be cute. I've never seen anybody get up out of the casket. Mark Twain said, you know, somebody asked Mark Twain, what would you like for people to say when they pass your casket? He said, I want them to say, look, he's moving. You know? <laughs> I've never seen that happen. Just, just to be honest with you, everything I can see about death looks bad. Here is the thing. Work with me. It looks like the end. How many times do those of us who still believe in an afterlife, how many times do we still speak of people we love who've died in the past tense as though they no longer exist? For us, the definition of death looks like the cosmic stop sign. That's what death appears to be to us. But that's not what death is at all. You have to understand that God is up to something in allowing us to die. And here's where it's going to get a little starchy, so work with me. When the first parents, the first human beings were on the planet, here, and here's the thing, death was never part of God's plan. God said to them, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So for God to say, don't do this, if you do, you'll die, we learn from that death was not part of God's plan. And somebody could say, well, Marcus, thing about fruit, you know, what, what can that matter? Hey, the issue is rebellion, rebellion against God. 
And if you think that fruit is too unimportant, then just go on to chapter 4 because it's fruit in chapter 3. It's murder in chapter 4. When sin came into the world, the whole human race fell. Every bad thing that's in our world happened because of the fall. When our parents rebelled against God, Adam and Eve, they, it, sin brought all kinds of evil. It brought in hatred, cruelty, racism. Uh, it brought in misery. It brought in disease. When sin came in, the human race fell. And we live in a fallen world. And beyond that, we have bodies and natures that are predisposed toward doing wrong. In Romans chapter 5, Scripture says sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death is spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. So you have to understand, death was a part of God's original plan. But maybe this is a good time to define death. Because as I said, if we go by what we can see, it looks like the cosmic stop sign. But the Greek word for death is thanatos, which doesn't mean stopping. It means separation or separating. If I tell you someday you're going to die, it's like, oh, thanks, Mark. I really need to hear that today. That's not pleasant. But if I tell you, you know what? Someday you're going to have to separate. The real you, the real soul and spirit that is going to have to separate from your body. It's like, well, I'm okay with that. But the problem is we go by what we can see. And so it's really important for us to understand we don't really understand death. Now, here's the thing. What is, what is God out to achieve in allowing us to die? Something he never intended in the first place. Powerful clue, although this is a verse we don't look at very often. After Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, verse 24, the Bible says, God stationed mighty cherubim, that's big angels, to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, heads up. The tree of life is not the tree that they ate of when they sinned. The tree of life is the ability to live everlastingly. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in heaven, the tree of life is going to be there. So why did God position an angel to guard the tree of life when Adam and Eve might want to get back to it? Here's the answer. The very worst thing that could happen to you and me is to live forever in the bodies we live in, in the world that we live in. We need to change. The most definitive chapter in the Bible on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to hear two verses. Look for the word cannot in the first verse and look for the word must in the second, okay? Okay, could we do that? Watch for the word cannot in the first one and look for the word must in the second. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. So you have to understand that when our death comes around, it's not God's way of ending us. It is God's way of getting us out of this flawed, broken world, this flawed, broken body, and transforming us into what we will ultimately be. Guys, when I came to the campus, I didn't plan to do this last night, but I just got, and this is, I think, the reason why I've gone into overtime every day. If I go into like two or three minutes of overtime, is that okay today? I got thinking about what the Bible says about what you're going to be like when you get to heaven. Because here's the thing, you know, honestly, I think a lot of people have the idea that when I go to heaven, I'm just going to be like a cloud or a mist, or maybe I'm going to turn into a little baby with wings. I'm going to float around on a cloud. I'm going to twang on a harp. Listen, I've got ADD. That bore the living life out of me if that's what heaven is like. 
But see, here's the thing, you know, and, and I used to, hey, listen, when I, started, when I started preaching, I was a 16-year-old preaching youth revivals. And so teenagers, my contemporaries would come up to me when I got through preaching, and they'd say, do you think I'm going to be able to get married before Jesus comes? Or if it was a guy, he'd say, do you think I'm going to be able to get my driver's license before Jesus comes? It's like, you know what, when I go to heaven, it's going to really tank. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible gives us four comparisons uh, by juxtaposition or contradistinction the bodies we have today versus the bodies that we will have when we get to heaven. Can I share those with you? Just so that you will know you don't have anything to fear with death if you love Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus. First of all, I love the verb. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says about this body, it is sown or it is planted. That's interesting. Because we say it's buried. But the Bible says it's planted. Hey, my dad used to love to garden. And uh, he made me do it with him when I was a kid. He made me garden, you know. And uh, so here's the thing. I went out to plant a lot of times with my dad. I never heard my dad say, we're going to go out and bury some corn. Man, we're going to dig a hole in the ground. We're going to bury some corn. Or we're going to bury some black eyed peas. No, no. When you plant something, you expect a, yeah, you expect a harvest, don't you? So don't you find it interesting that when the Bible talks about this body, it doesn't say it's buried, it's planted. It's planted. And then here's the thing. It, you know, when, when, when you plant just a few kernels of corn, you don't expect to get two or three kernels of corn. You expect to get ears of corn, right? There's a superiority of what's coming later. Now let me, work, let me show you. There's four characterizations here, and I'm going to try to go through these real fast, but they're awfully, awfully good. Are you ready for this? First of all, the Bible says it is planted a perishable body. It is raised an imper imperishable body. Let me give you a word that means more to us. It is planted a disposable body. Now, all of you who are so young here at New Spring, you, you won't realize this, but in the 20th century, we became acquainted over time with disposable products. I mean, first of all, it was like there were cloth towels, and then we got paper towels, and then there were like cloth diapers, and we got paper diapers. And then as time went along, you know, I made my fortune when I was a kid taking Coke bottles and trading them in for redemption for three, three cents a piece. Now, of course, you know, it's all plastic. So... You know, the, the, the temporary, the disposable came to be part of our life. I remember years ago taking my kid, my, one of my sons forgot his camera. We went to that chic experience, shopping experience known as Walmart, and we went to the back. And my son bought a little cardboard box that had one roll of film in it, and it was a disposable camera. Now, there are three things about a disposable product. First one is there's an inherent understanding of quality. I know if I bought something that's disposable, th there's, a, there's a quality assumption with that. I mean, when my son bought that cardboard camera, I know it wasn't a Nikon, and I knew it didn't come with a set of adjustable telephoto lenses. There's an understanding of the quality. Number two, there's a sense of a lifespan. I know there's a lifespan to this product. Number three, I know that if I try to use this product past its normal lifespan, it ain't going to be good. Now, think about those three concepts in relationship to your body. Number one, there's an understanding about the quality of this body. It, it's, it's disposable. I mean, here's the thing. You know, if you've lived long enough, you, you know that there are just issues with this body as, as it begins to reveal its disposable nature. I have no ACL. I have no anterior cruciate ligament in my left knee. I got hit with an eye in my eye with a golf club. I'm never going to see right out of my left eye. Beyond that, a lot of my hair has already gone to heaven. 
One of the hardest things about turning around and looking at all these pictures is looking at all that hair. I wish I could trade some of the pounds for the hair. You know, I, I, every once in a while at the Y, I'll run into a young new spring, you know, 25 or so, and they love to show me how buff and ripped they are, and I always think, wait till you see what time and gravity do with that. <laughs> it's disposable. It's, it's got a lifespan. We, have, we understand quality. There's a lifespan to this body. And then number three, here's the thing. If you and I happen to live longer than the normal lifespan, it's like a paper towel that you've used one too many times. It just isn't going to be great. It is planted a disposable body. It is raised a permanent body. You know, you think about there's a whole new quality. There's a forever lifespan, and there will never be any decay or decline. Every once in a while, somebody says, when we get to heaven, I want to see my gray-haired grandmother. Let me, let me tell you something. She is more beautiful than you are. I need to hustle. I See, I didn't even plan to preach. That's why the sermon's going long. The Bible says it is planted in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, the word dishonor comes from the Greek word atemeia. Temea means value. The prefix a means without. When you and I die, when I, right now our bodies are valuable to us, very valuable. It's amazing what we will do to make these bodies healthy and make them look younger than they are. Well, let me just say this. Our bodies are valuable because our souls and spirits are in them. When the soul and spirit leaves the body, if you want to know, and I'm not trying to be crude, if you want to know how valuable the body is, just leave it around a few days. It is planted without value. It is raised in glory. I listened to my buddy Johnny Hunt try to define glory last week. One of the hardest jobs a minister will ever have to do is to define the word glory because glory means what God is and what God does. Defining glory is like putting the Pacific Ocean in a teaspoon. But let me just say this. Our bodies are planted without value, but when they're raised, they're raised revealing the nature of who God is and what God can do. Yes. Got to hustle here. It is planted, number three, in weakness, without strength. It is raised in, 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 in power. The Greek word for power is dunamis there. We got a word dynamite from it. So just tell your wife you may be flabby right now, but you're going to be dynamite someday, Okay. And here's my favorite. I wish I had the whole day just to, to preach on this. It has planted a natural body. How many of us who are Christ followers, we struggle with the fact that it's almost like our bodies conspire against us when we try to please God. We want to do things we shouldn't do. We want to eat things we shouldn't eat. We want to go places we shouldn't go. We want to see things we shouldn't look at. It's just, I feel that. My body conspires against me. And Scripture says that when it's planted, it's going to be planted a body of this world. But when it's raised, it's going to be a spiritual body. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to have a body that wants to do the right thing? Um, see, that's why, here's the thing. We need to understand that's what death is all about. God is not, to, he's not out to end us. He's out to transform us. Well, I've got nine minutes to answer the question, what happens the moment you die? John chapter 11. This is probably about 10 days before Jesus dies. Jesus has friends who live in the bedroom community of Bethany. Bethany is a little town outside the city of Jerusalem. It would be like Bel Air or Derby or... Andover is to Wichita. And Bible scholars believe that whenever Jesus went to Jerusalem, he stayed in the home of these siblings. 
two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, brother Lazarus. And it seems that Jesus was really close to Lazarus. They were buddies. And so Jesus, who was up in Galilee, um, the sisters Mary and Martha fired off a text to Jesus and said, let me have the anachronism. They just said, your buddy's sick. Now, Jesus healed total strangers. There was a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood. She just said, if I can just touch his garment. And they knew Jesus healed her. I mean, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was always healing strangers. And so Mary and Martha just knew that they just sent off a message to Jesus to say, you know, your buddy Lazarus is sick. They just knew Jesus catch the next thing smoking and head for Bethany. But he didn't. He stayed where he was. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus is trying to get the disciples prepared for what's coming next. By the way, do you know that after Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible never says anybody dies or uses that term? It says that Stephen fell asleep. It says, Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. There's always some sort of euphemism for death in the Bible after Jesus rose from the grave because death is not what it looks like it is. So Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus, and they knew Lazarus has been sick. Jesus said, I'm going to go wake him up. Oh, I wish I had time just to preach that today. Jesus said, I go to wake him out of sleep. Now, it amazes me. You know, the disciples were not the sharpest knives in the door. When Jesus picked them, I mean, they were just very, I mean, they were blue-collar guys, tax collectors, former terrorists. I mean, these were, these, these were a bunch of losers. And I'm delighted for that because it means that maybe Jesus can use me. But what gets me is they're always trying to educate him. I mean, he's the son of God. He's the one who wrote the code for DNA. But they always want to like, coach Jesus up. So Jesus said, I'm going to go wake Lazarus up. And they said, Lord, we've been reading Prevention Magazine and Men's Health, and we just kind of like <laughs> thought this thing through. And if he's sleeping, it's a good thing for him to be asleep. We don't want to wake him up. And finally, Jesus said, guys, Lazarus is dead. I'm going to go wake him up. So he gets to Bethany. And Martha rushes out of the house and says, Lord, if you'd been here, a brother wouldn't have died. And Mary, I, always, I mean, this is for another message someday, but if your person has a hard time putting your feelings into words, we'll talk about her in a, a message in a few weeks. If, if you have somebody who has a hard time putting your feelings into words, you have a soul sister in Mary. Because Mary's kind of miffed at Jesus. I mean, her, she, he let her brother die. So she's not going to go out and talk to him. So Jesus calls for her. And Mary comes out, and she says the same thing as Martha said. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And that's when Jesus said what scholars say is the most profound words in the Bible. And they answer the question, what's going to happen if you're a follower of Jesus? What's going to happen the moment you die? Let's read. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. He didn't say, I know about resurrection. I've heard about it. I kind of have an idea of what to do about it. He just said, I am the resurrection. Because Martha was saying, Lord, this is a time thing. It's time sensitive. If you had been here on time, and Jesus said, forget about time. I'm the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And now one of the strangest statements in the English language. He said, he that believeth in me, even if he were to die, he would live I mean, that's peculiar. That's hard to even understand and process the, the grammar of it. Jesus is saying to the, to the sisters, even if he were to die, well, wasn't he dead? He's been out there in the grave four days. And Jesus said, look, even if he were to die, he couldn't die. He'd be alive. 
By the way, do you realize that the three people that Jesus raised to life, what did he do in every one of those three cases? He called them. Why did he call them? Because they could hear him. And now I want to read to you the words that scholars say are the most significant in the Bible, and they answer our question. Jesus said, this is verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. See, the part of you that is you, I mean, if you went to your doctor today and you said to her, doctor, I want you to do something about my personality, she'd think you're kidding her. Because that part of you is invisible. It's indefinable. You could say, well, it's part of the brain. No, the brain uses it, but that part of you that is you, that's invisible. That part of you that listens right now, that, that, that thinks, that values, that cares, that feels, that loves, that emotes, that's the real you. And here's what Jesus said. You got, you got, you've got to die. Well, that doesn't mean you've got to end. It means you've got to separate. It means, remember this, you're not a soul and spirit that has a body. I mean, you're not a body that has a soul and spirit. You're a soul and spirit that has a body. And so Jesus was saying, you've got to understand, that part of you that is you is never going to die. I don't know. It's been so long since I've been in elementary school. They may teach mathematics differently than when they taught it when I was a kid. But I remember when we, when we were taught long division. And we were given a long division problem. And you know how it is um, when you start performing that process um, that you can get up into the quotient and you can have a numeral at the end that will repeat itself. You'll have a three or a six or a nine that will just start repeating itself. And it will repeat itself into infinity. It doesn't matter how many times you put the divisor into the dividend, uh, you're going to get that numeral. And so I remember the teachers telling us, you know what, There's, you, don't have to keep, you don't have to keep performing that same step over and over. There is a, there is a signal that you can use to indicate that that numeral repeats itself into infinity. And back in my day, it was that you drew a bar over that numeral. Well, the Greek language is the most definitive language that I ever knew about. It's far more definitive than English. I can understand why God had the New Testament written in Greek because there are a lot of things that are powerful and they're hard to bring over in English. But when they actually, the Greeks actually had a way of signifying that a word is so emphatic that it's as if it repeats itself into infinity. And when Jesus made the statement, whoever lives and believes in me, will never die. There was such a word in Jesus' statement. You want to take a guess at which one it was? It's the word never. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never, 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 never die. When the thief on the cross prayed, you remember what Jesus told him? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say today we're going to die. I mean, that we're going to die physically. But he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He said, as casually as I'll tell him, or else I'll meet you at 12 at Panera for lunch. I mean, when Stephen was being stoned, some of you saw this on AD the other night. When Stephen was being stoned, you know, they were, you know, you know here's the thing. You think this. Stephen preached basically the same message that Peter preached on Pentecost. When Peter preached that 3,000 people accept Christ, when Stephen preached it, he got killed. Although he did have huge influence with his message on one person, and that guy was Paul. By the way, if you preach a sermon only one person accepts Christ, if that person is Paul, that's significant. <laughs> but anyway, here's the thing. You know, I've been preaching here for 30 years, and not everybody's left the service happy, but I've never had anybody bite me before. The Bible says they were so mad at Stephen, they started biting him. And they started throwing rocks at him. But it's when Stephen said, I see heaven open. Now, when I read that, I thought about, I always, when I hear, read the Bible, I think about mental images. For me, I think about a gated community, because heaven is a gated community. You know that. I have friends who live in gated communities. You always love that feeling. You, know, you sort of pull up to the gate, and you either give them a code, or, or you speak into, to the person you know, who's, who's 
garden gate community. And I love that feeling when those gates start just kind of like going open like this. Well, I thought, Stephen said, I see heaven open. It's like, I see heaven open. That's not what he said. Man, I love this. The Greek word that Stephen used is, I see heaven blowing wide open. It's like it isn't opening slowly. Stephen said, I see heaven blowing wide open. Because you see, the thing of it is, you're not going to die. I know I'm going to go a few minutes into overtime. Apologize ahead of time. My dad died two years ago, this coming July. And when he died, he'd been sick for a long time, but I thought he was probably going to live another month or so. And the reason I tell you that was the week my dad died, I was scheduled to preach the Sunday in one of America's largest churches. Great church. I'd already advertised my coming. I knew the pastor wasn't going to be there. And so on Tuesday when my dad died, I thought, man, I'm, I'm scheduled to preach Sunday. And I thought, man, my dad would get after me if I failed to show up where I'm supposed to be. So I was able to work it out with a lot of gymnastics and the help of a funeral director friend where I would have the funeral for my dad here on Friday and Monday in South Texas where they're from. And then in between, I would speak at this church on Sunday. And so the only thing I was concerned about was the message that God had put on me for this church I hadn't seen in years. And I knew I had had a lot of work to do to get this message ready for a church that has great impact around the world. A lot of people are going to see this message. So I had planned to use the week before, but my dad died. And so as you can imagine, the week before, I, I wasn't thinking about working on a message. I was trying to get my dad's service ready. And we had the service here on Friday morning and Friday afternoon after my dad's funeral. I'm setting it the airport by myself, exhausted, thinking, how in the world am I going to pull this off? And I thought, well, I've got all day tomorrow to work on the message. So I flew to Atlanta, and I was staying at my cousin, her husband's house, just beautiful sunroom on the back of her home. And I thought, I'd, Saturday morning, I had all my notes out, and I was going to work on the sermon. I get a phone call from a lay leader in this church whom I know is a dear friend, great Christian businessman. And he called me and said, Pastor Mark, he said, uh, there's a young man in our church. The whole church has been praying for him. He's 28 years old. And um, he said he's, been, he's in the hospital, and we, we thought he was doing better, but his organs are beginning to shut down. And, and you know, our pastor's not here. Is there any way you can come and minister to this family? So I put my notes down, drove about 45 minutes to the church campus, met this leader, got in his car, and we started going to the hospital. And he told me something. He said, this young man had planned to get out of the hospital and tomorrow, which would have been Sunday, he, this church still has kind of an altar call where people come forward to make public decisions. He said he wanted to come forward tomorrow and commit his life to Christ. But he said, Pastor Mark, he's not going to be able to get out of the hospital and he doesn't know. Can you tell him? So I get up to the waiting room. A lot of people from the church are there praying for him. They whisk me back to the intensive care unit. And I walk in. I look at this 28-year-old young man whose body is shutting down. My friend from the church is next to me. His mother, the young man's mother is right across from me at the head of the bed. His father is across from me at the foot. I reached down and took his hand. And I said, David, my name's Pastor Mark Hoover. And I'm going to be preaching tomorrow in your church. 
David, I know you want to be at church tomorrow and you want to commit your life to the Lord. But I said, David, you're not going to be able to get out of the hospital. And I watched his face fall. But I said, here's what you should understand. When I get through with the message tomorrow, I'm going to make an appeal for people to respond. And David, you can be the first person to respond to the invitation. And I said, would you like to pray with me? And he said, yes. And holding his hand, I prayed with him. A prayer similar to what I pray with you every week. And he prayed, he repeated the prayer with me. At times struggling to get the words out. We talked for a few moments. I put his hand down. And then he did something I'll remember as long as I live. Slowly he reached out his hands like this. And his mother across from me said, David, what's the matter? And he said, it's Jesus. And his mother said, David, do you see Jesus? He said, Jesus is waiting for me with open arms. He brought his arms down and closed his eyes. My friend and I left the room. I went on and preached the next day, and I don't know how God did it, but he pulled off something amazing in that message. I got on the plane that afternoon from Atlanta and flew to Austin. It wasn't long before I got the message from the pastor of that church. Those words that David said to me were the last words he ever said. He went into a coma, and he slipped out to be with God. I never will forget that. Jesus is waiting for me with open arms. If you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, that's what death is. In the words of the great black poet, death ain't no big thing. You slip out of this life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's it like to die? If you know Jesus, you're not going to. Somebody will have to tell you that you did. You'll be up in heaven feeling sorry for us. I mean, the rest of us, we'll get together. We'll be sad because we'll be separated for a while. We'll have your body here, and people walk by and say, don't he look natural? Why do people say that at funerals? <laughs> and then we'll go somewhere and come back and eat potato salad. You'll be up in heaven saying, gosh, I feel so sorry for those people down there. <laughs> hey, I know we're into overtime. Would you forgive me for going into overtime today? I want to pray a prayer with you. And here's the thing. I want to get in your chili just a little bit, and I want to ask you the question. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Because you're going to open your eyes somewhere when you leave this life. And if, you, if you're not sure, here's the thing. I want to pray a prayer with you like I pray with David. And the important thing is not the words. The important thing is that you mean them, okay? So here's the prayer. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken beyond fixing. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And because he's alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and king. I trust my soul to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if you just prayed that prayer with me real quickly, I have a gift I wanna give you. It's a packet, there's a DVD in it. That, well, there was a DVD in this one. <laughs> and there's a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. All you gotta do is come back to guest services in the middle of the lobby or back by the coffee shop and say, I pray with Mark. That's all you gotta do. Now guys, one more thing, one more thing before you go. Thank you so much. Um, I've counted this down six to number one, my favorite. I will just tell you this, a lot of longtime New Springers, including my wife, Mary Alice, 
They say that the number one sermon is the one I have ranked number three. So I don't know what you're doing in two weeks, but you might want to be here because Mariana says that's really number one, and she's always right. Thanks for being here. God bless.